Uh, now, as we see, uh, it is a complete free-for-all. And um, if somebody gets a hold of some document uh, or some information that may not be protected, uh, it's, uh, the phones in one of those categories were not protected, uh, that theoretically, uh, as a matter of law, could be stopped, it should be stopped. There's just no practical way of doing it. Uh, the, the, the Internet has put that kind of speech essentially beyond the reach of the law. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could join us today. I'm Craig Williams from a very sunny Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from Massachusetts, where for a change the sun is shining today. Uh, I write a blog here called Media Law and also another blog called Law Sites, Craig. And I write a blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. We'd like to take this time, Bob, to thank our sponsors, Clio, which is a web-based practice management software for lawyers. Go Clio.com. SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at SunTrust.com slash law. And Firm Manager from LexisNexis, a leading provider of information and business solutions at MyFirmManager.com slash LTN. Well, Bob... Today, we've got Chief Judge Alex Kaczynski of the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, who recently spoke at Golden Gate University School of Law's third annual intellectual property distinguished speaker program, where he created quite a buzz when he shared his insight on technology today and how it has greatly impacted the First Amendment. Craig, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to spotlight uh, the Honorable Alex Kaczynski and get his thoughts uh, on technology, bloggers, the First Amendment, and his role as a judge. So without further delay, we're going to welcome our very special guest today, Chief Judge Alex Kaczynski of the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Born in Bucharest, Romania, Judge Kaczynski was appointed United States Circuit Judge for the Ninth Circuit back on November 7th, 1985 by President Ronald Reagan, making him the youngest federal appeals court judge to be appointed. Judge Kaczynski also clerked for future Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Ninth Circuit from 1975 to 1976, and then for Chief Justice Warren Burger from 1976 to 1977. From June 5, 1981 to August 1982, Judge Kaczynski served as the first U.S. Special Counsel appointed by President Ronald Reagan. Judge Kaczynski became Chief Judge on November 30, 2007. He's a prolific essayist and a judicial commentator. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Judge Alex Kaczynski. Good morning. How are you? Well, we, we, are, we are all very well, and we really appreciate your taking the time to be on the show with us today. Uh, J- Judge Kaczynski, uh, you, you uh, made some waves last week with, with your comments, uh, as Craig alluded to earlier, uh, saying that uh, the First Amendment is perhaps dead or, or perhaps just superfluous at this point. Uh, what, what was your point? Uh, can, can you explain that for us? Well, we see it around us every day. I mean, what the big problem that uh, the First Amendment dealt with um, when it was first uh, uh, adopted uh, was the fear that government would suppress speech. 
this was in the days when speech was done uh, face-to-face. It was done uh, by printed publications. Uh, so in order to speak, you needed a, a printing press uh, or you needed an audience, a uh, a place to meet, you need to organize to in order to get uh, people to come listen. Um, and so there was a fear that the founding fathers uh, tried to deal with, uh, which was uh, the fear that the government would keep people from speaking by uh, stopping assemblies or uh, shutting down presses or uh, um, um, arresting people when they when they meet uh, to hear people speak. And so we have the First Amendment that guarantees uh, our freedom to to uh, to speak um, uh, without constraint from the government. Well, of course, today if somebody wants to speak, um, uh, they can get an audience of uh, thousands and millions, uh, sometimes uh, hundreds of millions of people uh, across the nations and across the world by just having a uh, laptop and an inter- internet connection. Uh, and so, um, if uh, somebody, for example, publishes uh, information that is uh, defamatory, uh, which of course is not protected by the First Amendment, uh, um, uh, or state secrets, which uh, the disclosure which is not uh, protected by the First Amendment, um, the government really couldn't uh, shut them up, as we've seen recently uh, with the WikiLeaks controversy. Um, something gets posted, it gets put on an internet server, and um, it's um, practically impossible for uh, uh, anybody to uh, uh, to um, uh, interfere with it. Uh, the servers are often not in the United States. Uh, they can be easily, uh, even if they are in a country where they could be shut down, it's very easy to replicate a server in another jurisdiction. Uh, far away from the reach of uh, our laws and our courts. Uh, and so, as a practical matter, it no longer becomes possible to suppress speech. And now, this is a good thing. Uh, you know, that's uh, the First Amendment uh, favors speech, and I think it's, it's um, uh, you know, certainly in some sense a positive development that um, the government no longer, uh, you know, we no longer need to fear that the government might suppress speech. Uh, but in the past, we've relied on courts for that. For example, when the when the when um, uh, Daniel Ellsberg leaked the Pentagon Papers, which uh, I guess all three of us are old enough to remember, mm, uh, we are. Uh, they um, uh, government went to court and got an injunction, and the press stopped. The New York Times stopped publishing the the, the Pentagon Papers until um, the uh, federal courts and including the Supreme Court had a chance to rule on the issue. It went, went very quickly, but it still took several weeks to, to uh, and during that time, the press has stopped, the information was suppressed. Uh, today, the government has no chance of doing that. And, um, you know, this is a good thing, but it's also a bad thing, because there are some things, the First Amendment's always been a balance. It's always been a balance, um, a balance that's heavily in favor of speech, but not conclusively. There are some things that we consider to be not protected and therefore that could be stopped and perhaps should be stopped, things like defamation, things like uh, uh, child pornography, uh, things like information about um, illegal activities, uh, gambling, uh, uh, you know, drug, uh, where one can obtain drugs uh, and, and uh, 
information about uh, military secrets, uh, uh, threats um, um, uh, are not protected by the First Amendment. Um, and in in earlier days, uh, it, it was not easy. It was um, you know the government could actually uh, it was not easy to to have such speech without government control. Uh, now, as we see, uh, it is a complete free for all. And um, if somebody gets a hold of some document uh, or some information that may not be protected, uh, it's, uh, the phones in one of those categories were not protected. Uh, that theoretically. Uh, as a matter of law, could be stopped and should be stopped. There's just no practical way of doing it. Uh, the, the, the Internet has put that kind of speech essentially beyond the reach of the law. And I think that's something that is not entirely positive development. I think it's something that we need to uh, be concerned about. As we're going through this, it occurs to me as well, and I think it was something that was mentioned in your speech or some commentary about it, it seems like a similar situation is occurring with respect to copyright law. Uh, there's an example given of the individual who was upset with the uh, Blu-ray, uh, the code that's used to encode Blu-ray uh, discs for movies. And I that think it was code HD was, DVD, I think. Right. That code was then released across the Internet. Uh, it was subject to copyright protection, and the company could not move quickly enough to protect it, and now that technology is available for hackers to be able to breach the copyright on movies. Do you see a similar situation with respect to copyright law? Oh, yes, very much so. Uh, this is what we call the Streisand effect. Um, it has a name on the Internet, and that is uh, when somebody has uh, goes to court to try to protect their interests, um, uh, the Internet strikes back, and this came from an incident involving uh, actress uh, Barbara Streisand, who has, or at least at that time, had a house uh, in Malibu uh, that was visible only from the ocean. And somebody took pictures of the house uh, and put it on the Internet. And she went to court to try to conjoin it uh, on, a, on a theory that this was an invasion of her privacy. And um, the immediate effect was to have the pictures replicated uh, 50, 100, uh, 500 times uh, in other websites so that uh, what where these used to be these little obscure pictures that nobody really knew much about uh, are now all of the Internet. If you just put in Barbara Streisand and um, uh, Malibu uh, in, into a search engine, you will, you will come up with dozens of pictures of her house. Um, so the the... Even the attempt to go to court and stop something like that, uh, you know, the same thing happened with the HD DVD key that you were talking about, where where um, when the, they tried to go to court to stop distribution of the secret key, uh, the net effect was that it was replicated again and again and again into various uh, websites and blogs uh, on the internet, so that uh, it has its own uh, web page. Uh, I mean, it's, a, its own URL. It has its own uh, uh, barcode. It is now um, uh, found uh, woven into all sorts of uh, um, the, the, the background pictures on various websites, so that uh, there's no way to get rid of it. It becomes a big, uh, essentially becomes indelible. So. Um, uh, legal efforts to try to to uh, 
stop such things uh, when perhaps they ought to be stopped uh, wind up boomeranging. Well, so so on one hand, we have speech that is perhaps freer than ever before, and on on the other hand, we have uh, the problem uh, that 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 uh, freedom of speech, that that uh, unbounded freedom of speech. Uh, creates a, a sense of irresponsibility or allows for irresponsibility that uh, that uh, previously was was more controlled by uh, established uh, news media uh, so what does that all mean for first amendment law when you're suggesting that the first amendment is dead are you suggesting that 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 the the law's ability to deal with these situations is dead it is um what well, you know it's hard to predict future technology so uh, you know, dead sounds uh, awfully final. Uh, and I'm, not, <laughs> well. I'm, I'm not sure that uh, it is dead forever, so to speak. But let's just say it is uh, fast asleep, and um, uh, for the time being, until there is some sort of uh, a legal, perhaps technological solution for the problem. Um, uh, the idea that there's some speech that. Um, uh, you know, most speech is protected, but then there's some speech that, uh, as to which we can have some constraints. Uh, that is pretty much out of the window. I mean, think about ca- campaign finance um, uh, laws. The Supreme Court has held that it is uh, permissible uh, to uh, restrict, uh, under the First Amendment, it's permissible to restrict uh, contributions uh, to uh, um, uh, to political campaigns. Uh, you know, they. they they, they held some restrictions unconstitutional, but uh, still uh, <laughs> most uh, limits uh, adopted by the by Congress uh, have been upheld. Uh, along comes the internet, and uh, look at the last election cycle, the presidential election cycle. There was a uh, an ad during the primaries uh, that was called uh, the uh, there was a takeoff on the Apple 1984 ad. Uh, the one that shows Big Brother speaking with uh, a bunch of faceless drones, uh, except uh, this one showed instead of Big Brother it was Hillary Clinton, and uh, this was I, I, I you know understand an ad that was supposed to support uh, then candidate Senator Obama uh, against uh, as against uh, uh, Senator Clinton, who, who you recall they were competitive in the in the, in the primaries, and um, that. Ad was produced anonymously. It was put on YouTube, uh, and it was uh, viewed uh, five million times. Uh, you know, enough views there that many people think uh, it turned. Uh, uh, it may have turned the election in favor of uh, of Obama. Uh, now, you know, it's hard to say how these things play out, but they certainly played a role. Uh, and it was um, something that was a contribution to Obama campaign. It did not have to be reported. It did not. It, it essentially um, bypassed all uh, all the constraints on on on, uh, on uh, uh, contributions uh, to campaigns because it was produced anonymously and uh, lifted uh, loaded onto YouTube anonymously, and then when uh, there was an effort to try to take it down. It, of course, got replicated and showed up in other places and, and basically couldn't be pulled off the Internet. Uh, now, we eventually found out uh, who the producer of this ad was, but uh, my understanding is that basically he outed himself because he, he got so much publicity, <laughs> he decided to come forward 
uh, to take credit. Uh, but something like that can be produced, and nobody need ever know who it was. So here is this, you know, significant, uh, what turned out to be a major contribution to a presidential campaign, which turned out perhaps to be the uh, deciding factor uh, in, in key races, uh, perhaps the deciding factor in, in, in picking who the president was, and was done by uh, some guy with a laptop um, uh, who, you know, uh, did it on his own without uh, without any... Uh, help and without uh, disclosing who he is and um, beyond any uh, ability to be uh, reached by the law in case uh, somebody wanted to hold him accountable. How do the courts deal with that type of situation? Do they simply look to the legislature to say, you've got to figure this out, you've got to rein this in, or is it simply a problem that can't be reined in? I mean, you've got, we've got at least three different types of law, Federal Election Commission law, regulations, copyright, First Amendment speech that is all being affected, and there are innumerable more that are being affected by the Internet and the ability not to police these things. Um, and I'm sure that there's child pornography that needs to be policed on the Internet that is is not sufficiently policed. Is there a solution to this, or is it simply that the Internet has now restored power to the people to the point that the people get to choose how to use it? Well, there are some solutions, but first of all, let me say, how do the courts react? Um, you know, the courts, unlike the other branches of government, are completely passive. Uh, we can't do anything, and, and you know, God help us, uh, we don't want to do anything, and you don't want us to do anything, uh, uh, unless people come before us and seek redress. So unless somebody can bring a case, or brings a case against somebody else, we are without power, and, you know, we there's nothing we can do, and there's nothing we should do. Um, if you don't know who to sue, uh, because uh, the speaker is anonymous, if you don't know who to try to enjoin, uh, there's nothing, you know, there's simply no involvement by the court. The courts just have no role to play whatsoever. Now, some things can be done, and uh, and uh, we have seen this uh, recently uh, in the last two weeks, and I, I want to be careful not to make any comment because these are ongoing pending cases, but I just give this an example uh, of something where the government uh, can do something. Uh, there's a law uh, passed some years back uh, prohibiting Internet gambling, and um, it... Um, my understanding, and this is only based on what I read in the, in, in the news, is that although it was prohibited, uh, it was still possible for people to do it, and um, uh, many of the servers or the servers were offshore, and then they used, uh, I understand, some uh, other websites to uh, to handle the financial transactions. Uh, there were arrests recently, and again, I want to make no comments as to whether they're justified or not, uh, but um, uh, the, the Justice Department has now taken the position that these things are illegal, are prohibited by, by, by uh, U.S. law, and apparently they have gone after the people involved in it. Now, the key there, uh, and again, I, I don't know whether they will succeed or not, but the key there in being able to even bring a case was that you had a financial aspect of the transaction. And uh, if you are trying to get money out of people, you need financial institutions. You need some way of getting money uh, to people who are uh, who are uh, getting online and, and getting money out of them or getting them to pay money 
but there needs to be some financial institutions, and that requires a physical presence uh, somewhere. Uh, um, uh, it, it can all be done uh, in, in cyberspace, uh, and that's a vulnerability. Uh, that's why you can't, uh, you don't see much uh, um, uh, commercial traffic in child pornography or, or commercial traffic in, in drugs on the internet. Uh, the reason is you you still need to to transfer cash, and and that is a winds up requiring. Uh, um, uh, yeah, a financial institution. Uh, so um, that is a vulnerability. But when you get to these activities that people do for free, like replicating uh, copies of uh, the code for the HDDVD or pictures of Barbara Streisand's house or um, the secret uh, documents that WikiLeaks posts, um, uh, or um, uh, the campaign uh, ad, like the one involving um, Big Brother, uh, the, the Hillary Clinton Big Brother ad, um, if they don't want money for it, if they just do it as a labor of love or, uh, you know, for some political reason, uh, then uh, it becomes very, very difficult. And um, there probably is a way, you know, how we will find a way of... Uh, uh, of um, dealing with the things, uh, but probably the answer will be uh, in technology and not not in law. There's also been some situations where the government itself has been involved with some espionage of some types. Where, for example, I've read in the newspaper that uh, we have the capability to create a code that could be directed toward. Iran or Iraq and their nuclear power systems and essentially shut them down. And how does the Constitution deal with those situations that are not even anticipated where we have the capability to launch an attack, a nuclear attack, on a foreign government sitting at a desk? Well, that those are matters way beyond the competence of courts to, to deal with. Uh, um, you, if you recall the Pentagon Papers case, you also uh, will recall um, when Justice Douglas, uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Bill Douglas, issued an order in joining uh, the U.S. government bombing of Cambodia, and uh, it didn't take. Uh, I mean, the order was in, uh, he issued it. He I think he was somewhere in the West. I think in Goose Prairie, Washington, uh, and the lawyers came to him and uh, and he signed an order in joining the bombing. Uh, well, uh, the other eight justices uh, quickly lifted that stay. Uh, when it comes to matters like that, when it comes to matters of waging war and, and um, uh, espionage and uh, the conduct of foreign affairs, uh, courts tend to be uh, uh, highly differential to the decisions by uh, uh, our officials, particularly our commander-in-chief. It's time for a quick break. We'll have lots more with Judge Alex Kaczynski when Lawyer to Lawyer returns right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the role of security in cloud computing. Jack, what about security? Are there any ethical or security-related concerns that need to be addressed with cloud computing? 
We're starting to see the first ethics opinions come out on cloud computing, and the early proposed ethics opinions like that from the North Carolina State Bar indicate that there are no ethical issues relating to the use of cloud computing in a law firm, but that as with the use of any third-party provider, an appropriate amount of due diligence needs to be undertaken to verify that the provider you're using has implemented an adequate level of security and privacy precautions and is essentially taking due care with your confidential client data. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS 70 Type 2 attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge, or to learn more, visit www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi, and my co-host Jay Craig Williams and I are very honored today to be joined by Chief Judge Alex Kozinski of the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Judge Kozinski, you you mentioned uh, a couple of times that you you uh, have to be careful uh, in what you could comment on. Um, we we live in an age uh, in in which uh, technology is is uh, is drawing in judges as, as well as the rest of us. Uh, judges are uh, are blogging and and are joining uh, social networking sites and are uh, getting on Twitter. Uh, you've you've said uh, you said in a, in a printed opinion once that uh, a judge does not check his First Amendment rights at the courthouse door to be reclaimed at the expiration of his judicial tenure. So, so how does a judge find the right balance between uh, his, his ethics, his ethical responsibilities, his or her ethical responsibilities, and, 
and uh, the ability to express him or herself freely. Well, there, there are certain things that that are simply prohibited. Uh, we may not engage in political speech, uh, and uh, this goes out, uh, out of the fact that uh, while we are uh, sitting as judges, um, uh, we often have to pass on matters that are adopted by the political process. I mean, I'll give you just an example. Uh, one of the cases now pending in our court uh, has to do with the constitutionality of Proposition 8. Uh, um, and now, of course, uh, um, uh, Craig will remember, and uh, perhaps Bob, too, you will remember, uh, although you, you're the other side of the country, there was a big campaign in, a, um, in the last election cycle involving Proposition 8 and, uh, and gay marriage. Uh, this was a big political issue. Well, it turns out our court uh, is now involved in, uh, will now be involved in the ruling on its constitutionality. And so, um, much as we might have had a right as citizens to speak out on the issue during the campaign, uh, if any of us uh, uh, had had done so, I think uh, people would justly be concerned that you know we we take a position on on the, on the issue and therefore. Uh, couldn't uh, f- uh, fairly adjudicate the, uh, the case, so we'd have to disqualify ourselves. So, in a, in a, in a you know common sense effort to avoid uh, suspicion and to avoid uh, lack of confidence uh, uh, that uh, about our impartiality, uh, we would naturally know not to speak on 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 that issue. And Proposition Eight is just one example, but you know there are lots of political issues that arise that often wind up in the courts. So we, you know, we don't want to do anything that uh, would cause us to be disqualified. Uh, I know, for example, one of my colleagues, uh, not from California, but some years back, one of my colleagues uh, had to recuse uh, himself or herself. I want to be vague about who it was, uh, because uh, he had been drawn into a discussion about initiative that happened in his uh, uh, in, in that judge's state uh, that eventually came before the court and, and, an abund- and this was not even a public discussion but this was a discussion with some other people where uh, he discussed the issue and then uh, he felt uh, uh, people might be suspicious uh, or might worry that he could not be impartial in adjudicating the, the, the legal the, the constitutional issue because he had taken sides he had expressed the view on on that initiative, uh, you know, as a citizen, but nevertheless, uh, you know, express the view as to the wisdom or the appropriateness of the, of the measure. So um, we, you know, do, uh, learn not to speak about things that will um, eventually come before us or likely come before us uh, as judges. Um, the other uh, prohibition is that we can't speak about matters that are pending in the courts. And the theory behind that is that um, uh, if a judge speaks about a case in another court, uh, other judges, uh, the judges where the case is pending, might listen and might be influenced by that. They might be particularly influenced because it is a fellow judge. You know, judges tend to follow precedent, and they tend to uh, listen to what other judges say. 
but when you make precedent, you're making it in the context of a case where everybody's had a chance to uh, to to uh, brief the issue and argue, and so you're making an objective decision. If you just sort of make a comment off the top of your head, uh, this might influence the judicial process somewhere else, uh, and yet uh, it doesn't have the, the you know all the protections that uh, are involved in in uh, in uh, uh, making a decision in the case where you get to hear both sides of the issue, you get to think about it, you. Uh, and you 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 resolve the case in a thoughtful, uh, uh, considerate way. Uh, so um, you know the, the prohibitions are not that broad or or particularly oppressive. You just have to think about your job and think about what kind of things would uh, reasonably cause people to doubt your partiality uh, in cases, and that leaves a great deal of room of matters you can do and. Uh, that you can't comment on. And I think when it comes to speaking about the law, I think there is also a, a commensurate responsibility. While you have a responsibility not to speak about certain issues, I think judges have a responsibility to help educate the public about the law. And I think they also have a responsibility to give um, insights uh, about the way the law operates and the way it affects people's lives, um, when those insights are um, ones that they gain from their judicial experience. Uh, we get to see a particular slice of life and a particular um, uh, kind of, um, uh, you know, we have a particular point of view that is not shared by a lot of people. Most people don't hear both sides of controversies, don't see a lot of cases uh, most people have never seen a criminal trial unfold. Most people have not uh, ever looked at a wiretap application. Um, and, um, uh, you know, it, it seems to me there are things that we can say from this experience. Most, most people have never sentenced an individual, never sent somebody off to spend the next 20 years of their life in prison. It's, it's that that itself is an experience that that uh, you never forget. It's it's something that uh, haunts you um, uh, long after you do it. Uh, it's a bit like playing God, like you're taking away a piece of somebody's life. And I think it does uh, give judges an insight that other people don't have. And I think it is useful in democracy to have a plurality or a multitude of views expressed uh, so that people can make informed decisions uh, about their lives and about democracy and about the way the government runs. So I think uh, judges, if they are too cautious in um, in, in speaking out or in, in discussing things that are peculiar within their knowledge, uh, I think they wind up um, uh, depriving um, Sort of our democratic uh, process of uh, some information that they they would uh, um, uh, that could be quite beneficial. Uh, a few years back, I remember getting a call from uh, the New Yorker uh, magazine, and they wanted me to write an article about what is it like to be involved in an execution, to actually not not, not obviously put in the needle, but actually be involved in writing. Uh, uh, um, reviewing the last stay application in a case where somebody get executed, and um, I reflexively I said no, I won't do it. Uh, you know, it's a little too close to home, 
And the editor called me and uh, said, look, uh, we've tried a number of judges to write about this. Uh, Nobody is willing to write about it. And we think the public is entitled to know what it's like. I mean, the public votes to adopt death penalty. They they, uh, elect officials who prosecute these things. And I think we think that the public is entitled to know what it's like to be there in the final hours uh, involved in somebody, you know, uh, essentially helping to put somebody to death. And I thought about it, and I decided that um, they were right, and I, um, I mean, that it was right, and that uh, the public deserves to know, and it was painful, and uh, I had to sort of rip a little piece of myself to put it on the on, on the page. Uh, but I did write the piece, and um, I've, you know, heard from many readers that they found it uh, arresting and enlightening. Uh, I, I suspect it's something that few other people could have written. I mean, I think other judges could have written it, but the, those who have never been involved in the process, uh, uh, um, I think, uh, would learn something by reading it. In your in your Golden Gate University speech, you proposed some solutions to the problem that we've started talking about, about the First Amendment and the ubiquitousness of the Internet and its inability to be able to control the types of information and actually, by taking it to court, potentially exacerbating the situation. We're coming close to the end of our program, and, and we probably need to wrap up and get your final thoughts but in, in doing so, it would be helpful, I think, to identify what solutions you see to some of the problems that we've talked about today. Is there, a, a, I think one of the things you proposed was that we as bloggers and as citizens need to respect the intellectual property rights of others and recognize that some of the steps we're taking in publishing as quickly as we publish, that we're in a way, interfering with mainstream media's ability to be able to fund foreign uh, bureaus where we are able to have democracy look at what foreign countries are doing and in, in treating their, their countrymen? And are, are we actually hurting ourselves with blogging and, and uh, the lack of respect that we have for the intellectual property of others? Uh, well, I think awareness is... is, um, is um the first step. It's like anything else. You know, when you, uh, you're a teenager and you sort of go out and get a chance to start drinking, I think uh, maybe sometimes uh, uh, you overdo it. I remember I had, maybe I had uh, one or two sessions where I uh, prayed to the uh, porcelain god for uh, after one of those early sessions, and then I sort of learned that it was uh, it was a uh, uh, you know something that uh, freedom is a good thing, but in moderation. So I think we're in the stage where maybe we're still of our teen years and reveling in the um, in the fact that uh, you know we can do so much uh, uh, without uh, without constraint. But I think as as we mature and as we realize that some of what we do is very hurtful, um, that uh, we we need to sort of come to the realization that there's a responsibility that goes along with freedom and uh, the the uh, responsibility calls for. Uh, Respecting uh, established institutions and respecting the uh, uh, established rights. Um, you know, something like a newspaper. It's a, you know, it seems like a little thing, but uh, you know, putting a newspaper uh, uh, on somebody's doorstep every morning 
it takes tremendous amount of resources. Uh, you need correspondents, uh, you need reporters in places like Baghdad and Jerusalem and uh, uh, South Africa, and uh, um, you need uh, a, a network of, uh, of uh, um, uh, for communication. You need presses. You, you need a whole a whole um, uh, enterprise that, uh, that, that you know to 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 get that information out to people. And without the newspapers, bloggers, what would they do? I mean, many bloggers uh, uh, that uh, do news usually copy from uh, copy from one of the established sources. Well, when the sources are gone, uh, where are we going to be? I think we need to think about that. And I think the first step to trying to find a solution is to realize that we have a problem. And I think we're just getting to the place where some of us... Uh, are realizing that we may have a problem. It may be something we need to, to focus on. And um, I think, uh, you know, we have a lot of ingenuity in this country. We have a lot of uh, creativity. And we have a lot of, uh, uh, we have a great commitment to democratic values. So I think I think uh, once people realize that this is, a, this is a problem, this is something they need to be worried about, uh, they, they will, they will uh, help come up with a solution. So we need to start buying newspaper subscriptions again. I think there's something to that, yeah. I think uh, either either that or find some other way of uh, of um, of uh, funding those institutions because once they're gone, they're going to be very difficult uh, to uh, to uh, you know bring back to life. Well, as a lawyer who represents newspapers, I am all for that. <laughs> <laughs> we would be thrilled to invite you back, and uh, we have a. The producers speaking in our ears as we're as we're speaking, and the the communication we have is we need another two hours with you. <laughs> we'll, it's try, been we'll a, try to come up with something. Very good. It's been a wonderful conversation. We tremendously appreciate your willingness to uh, be with us today and to express your thoughts about the First Amendment and the other issues that have been raised by the uh, internet and other changes that have occurred in technology in our society. And, and thank you very much for taking the time to be with us and express your thoughts to our listeners. And let my me pleasure. just add my thought. Let me add my thoughts to you also. Uh, my uh, thanks to you, Judge Kaczynski, also. Uh, and uh, before we wrap up the show, just a reminder to our listeners that they can now obtain CLE credit for listening to our program through the West Legal Ed Center. Uh, go to legaltalknetwork.com and find the West Legal Ed Center link there to uh, find out more about how you can do that. Great. And Bob, thanks very much again to Judge Kaczynski for being with us today. We, we sincerely appreciate uh, his involvement in our show. My pleasure. We'll be back again next week for another great Lawyer to Lawyer show. And when you want legal, think Legal Talk Network. Thanks a lot. Talk to you next week. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. 
and me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.